Thank you, Ron. <clears throat> I'm grab my water. Excuse me. Okay. I want you to just take a moment this morning and picture with me the year 1987. Got to dial it back a little bit. That's going to go back before some of you were born, um, but others of you uh, can dial it back to then. Uh, the place is the gymnasium at Jackson Junior High School in Vienna, West Virginia. It's a Friday night at a school dance that was organized and hosted by the student council. Now, I was uh, vice president of the student council. Uh, I ran with the slogan, vote for me, I'm BC. It was really catchy. Got me a few extra votes, I believe. Um, but there, I was part of the planning team of this uh, school dance. And so, about midway through the dance, a 14-year-old Barrett Kaufman with feathered hair and wearing a pair of Adidas high-top sneakers, unlaced, choreographed with a group of fellow students the dance that went along with the hit song, Walk This Way, by Run DMC and Aerosmith. And it was awesome. Now, I remember the dance and could do the dance for you this morning, but not for YouTube, right? Uh, we've got videos. It's not the kind of thing that any of you need to be able to go back and watch and rewatch. And so, uh, so yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off. But um, now, perhaps you've never heard of Aerosmith or Run DMC, and that's okay. Perhaps you have heard of them and you don't like their music, and that's fine too. However, I want to share with you about this song because what happened in 1986 when these two music groups collaborated on the song, Walk This Way, changed music forever. Music historians agree, and many articles have been written about the significance of that song. It was actually a hit song from Aerosmith back in the 1970s, but by the mid-'80s, their career had tanked. They were considered an old, irrelevant rock group. At the same time, Run DMC did not have much of a career because hip-hop music was still relatively unknown and not played on the radio. So when these two groups collaborated on their new version of the song Walk This Way in 1986, not only did it revive the career of Aerosmith, but music historians point to it as the song that brought hip-hop music into the mainstream. And I share that story with you this morning as an example of how the collaboration of two individual drastically, right, I mean, those of you that know the group, I couldn't get any different, drastically different groups, created something together 
that was better. And accomplish something together that was more than either individual group could have been or done on their own. And the reason I share it is because I think it's a great illustration of the church. The kind of church that Paul envisions in his letter to the Ephesians. Paul has already told us in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, that the mysterious will of God is to bring all things, every people group, every culture, every generation, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under the headship of Jesus Christ. Paul says that's the mysterious will of God. Paul's already told us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, that through the cross, Jesus Christ has broken down the dividing walls of hostility between people groups, ethnic walls, cultural walls, generational walls, religious walls, walls that divide people have been broken down by the cross in order to create one new group out of individual groups. Paul's already told us in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, that through the church, God intends to put on full display the rich variety of his wisdom. The church exists in part to be a visual representation of the manifold wisdom of God. You see, Paul's vision for the church is of two groups coming together in Christ and how the collaboration of two individual, very different groups, in this context, Jewish and Gentile Christians, create something together that's better and accomplish something together that's more than either individual group can be or do on their own. Now, it would have been much easier for the two groups to have remained separate and had the Jewish Christian group meet on one quarter and the Gentile Christian group meet on the next block over. But according to Paul, that would not be the church. Bringing these groups together is going to be messy and it's going to be hard work And it's not going to happen naturally, and it's going to take great purpose and intentionality. And so this is why this letter is all about unity. In the first three chapters, Paul writes about what the church should believe about unity. And then in the second three chapters, Paul writes about how the church should behave in unity. But the whole letter is about unity. It's the theme that runs throughout the entire letter, tying the whole thing together. So we're going to spend these next three weeks on the second half of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Um, So I'm forming kind of a series within a series. My series, my overall series is walking us through Ephesians, but in that we're going to form a little three-week series the second half of Ephesians 4 that I've titled, Walk This Way. And this morning, we're going to 
Um, and, and it's all going to tie together. But this morning, we're just going to look at these first three verses that Ron read for us earlier, verses 17 through 19. Next week, we're going to look at verses 20 through 24. And then um, two weeks from now, we're going to finish the chapter there in verses 25 through 32. Um, the second half of this letter, uh, as I mentioned to you, the, the, this idea of how it teaches us how to behave in unity, that's really the emphasis, that's the priority of the second half of the letter. It's also been called kind of the practical half of the letter, um, begins uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, with this verse, Paul writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a way that's worthy of the calling that you have received. And so that's an important word, walk. It's a word that Paul's going to use eight times in this half of the letter, walk. And it literally means to just walk around, but Paul uses it with a specific purpose in mind. He uses it to refer to our conduct. It refers um, to how one orders their behavior. And so we find that there in verse 1. And then now that we're here um, in verse 17, in these three verses that we're looking at today, he uses that word walk two more times. Paul writes here in verse 17, now this, this is how the NRSV, now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord you must no longer, the NRSV says live, but it's that word walk. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles, again, the NRSV says live, but it's that word walk. And it refers to how, how someone orders their behavior. Interestingly, I think this is very interesting. As Paul writes this letter to Gentile Christians, Paul asks the Gentile Christians not to walk in the way of a Gentile. So my question then of Paul here in verse 17 is how does the Gentile not act like a Gentile? Or I think you could fill in that blank with any people group. I think Paul could make the same statement. He could ask the Jewish Christians to not walk in the way of a Jew. He could ask American Christians to not walk in the way of the Americans. How does a Gentile not act like a Gentile? Paul is not insisting that the Gentiles stop acting like Gentiles ethnically. I think that's a really important point. Because the call to Christ is not a call to change your ethnic group. God does not want Gentiles to become Jews or Jews to become Gentiles. Instead, Paul is insisting that the Gentiles stop acting like Gentiles ethically. 
You see, just because I'm an American ethnically doesn't mean I have to act like an American ethically. The fact that I live in Lexington shapes my ethnicity, but it does not have to shape my ethics. If you recall, at the beginning of this letter, months ago, we talked about living in two places at the same time. And so I live in Lexington, and that shapes my ethnicity. And I live in Christ. And this is the reality that shapes my ethics. And so, therefore, Paul can say to the Gentile Christians, you must no longer walk like the Gentiles. You must no longer behave as the Gentiles do ethically. And so, the message of verse 17 then is very clear. Do not walk this way. Paul, uh, in verse 22, calls this way Uh, the way of the old self. Don't walk in it. And the main word that he uses here in verse 17 to describe this old way is futility. Futility. He says it's the the, the futility of their minds or the futility of their thinking. Now, this is a a rare word in the New Testament and only appears two other times. However, the biblical scholars in the room know that in the Old Testament, this word is used often, and there's one book in particular where it's used a lot, and it's a book found in the wisdom literature called Ecclesiastes. There in Ecclesiastes, this word that's translated here, futility, occurs 39 times, and it means emptiness, means meaninglessness. The writer of Ecclesiastes comes to the conclusion that everything is meaningless. When you live this life of the old self, it's meaningless. You can do it all, try it all, be it all. Every path, every road leads to futility. It leads to meaninglessness. Paul writes that the Gentile way of life is void of any real meaning or any purpose. You know, as beautiful as life can be at times, it's short. It's but a breath. I remember when my oldest Bailey was born. Um, People would say, enjoy these days because you're going to blink and she's going to be at college. Well, I blinked. I blinked. It went by really fast. Life is, life is short, and life is painful, and it's hard. You know, Kevin shared with us a couple of weeks ago and kind of walked us through Job, and we see that reality to be true here on earth. 
I knew an old preacher when I was little who used to say, I beg your pardon, God never promised you a rose garden. I've never forgotten that. I mean, it was like when I was seven or eight. But it's true. These days, these days that we live out on earth, the two words I've used most often recently is they're, they're weighty and they're wearisome. Then, from a human perspective, life is really without much significance. A person might do something significant enough to, to gain them 15 minutes of fame. That's the expression, right? But the rest of their days are fairly common. Researcher Brene Brown writes that all humans have a shame-based fear of being ordinary. She describes it as a fear of being normal and never feeling extraordinary enough to be noticed or to be lovable or to belong or to ever cultivate a real sense of purpose. It's the futility of life. It's the way of... It's, the way of the old self leads us to futility. There's an entire book in the section of the Old Testament known as the wisdom literature that repeats this truth for us over and over again, 39 times. The message is clear. So then, how does one respond to this reality? How do we respond to this truth? Well, the conclusion of the writer of Ecclesiastes and the conclusion of Paul in Ephesians is that meaning in this life, purpose in this life, is only found in our relationship with God and our relationship with people. That's it. Relationships are what bring meaning and significance to our lives. Yet the mindset and the thinking of the old self in response to this futility of life is to turn away from God, to turn away from others, and to turn inward upon ourself. The reformer Martin Luther had a great definition of sin. He describes sin as a human being curved in upon self. And I think that's exactly what Paul is describing in verses 18 through 19. It's a turning inwards upon self, away from the life of God, and away from life with others. You see, the way of Christ is to look to the interests of others and not to your own interests. Paul tells us that in Philippians chapter 2. But the way of the old self is to look to our own interests and to turn away from God and the interests of others. It's a turning away from God and others and turning in upon self. In verses 18 and 19, Paul vividly describes this reality, this way of the old man, this way of life that he's saying you must not walk in any longer. Um, in his book, Seeing the Unseen, some of you all may be familiar with it, uh, Joe Beam, 
not Jim Beam, Joe Beam, preacher, uh, who wrote this book, um, calls this, um, in verses 18 and 19, he calls this way Satan's strategy for sin. And it's a four-step process, and perhaps you've experienced it in your own life, or you've witnessed it in the lives of those around you, and I want to walk us through it. It's this, it's this way of the old self. It's this way of the Gentile. Um, it's this, this ethic. It's this meaningless. It's this futility of the mind. And Paul paints this vivid picture, this process of how it occurs in our, in our old self. Now, I want to walk through these four steps. Step one our understanding is darkened. There's a darkening of our understanding. Um, when we moved uh, into our house several years ago, Karen uh, affectionately called our kitchen the cave because there was only one light fixture uh, that hung above the sink for the entire room. It was a dimly lit room. Um, and so uh, we had someone come in and put eight can lights, like big old, like spotlight can lights uh, in our kitchen. Um, and so now at night when the kitchen lights are on, um, you, can, you can see our house from the air. The pilots fly into Lexington, and um, when they're coming in from the way of our house from into the airport, they know they're getting close uh, when they see our kitchen lights on. So we added a dimmer switch, okay? We overcorrected the problem, and so we put in a dimmer switch, so we're now able to control the brightness a little bit. And that's the imagery that Paul's using here. The imagery here is just the dimmer switch on the light of our understanding being darkened. It doesn't have to be like that. It's just a darkening, like the dimmer switch, of our understanding. This is opposite of Paul's prayer back in Ephesians 1, verse 18. There, at the beginning of the letter, this beautiful prayer that we looked at and many of you familiar with is that God would open up the eyes of, will make... Uh, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, right? Enlighten the eyes of our heart so that we may know Christ and the inheritance of the saints. And so that's the opposite. It's not the enlightening of our heart, the eyes of our heart, but it's the dimming, it's the darkening of our understanding. I think another really helpful way to kind of think of this imagery is to think of the rotation of the earth around the sun. And as we face the sun, we're in the light. It's day. And as we rotate away from the sun, we're in the dark. It's night. When we face God, when we face others, we're in the light. And as we turn away from God and as we turn away from others, we're in the dark. 
That's what's happening here. This letter about unity and this letter about bringing these two people groups together as one. Understanding is darkened when the individual group turns away from the other group. Turns away from God. And as they turn away from the light, the eyes of their heart being enlightened, their understanding is darkened. And then step two, our hearts become hard. As we turn away from God and others, this alienates us, it separates us, Paul says, from the life with God and with others, and we're just left with self. And we become hardened. This process of turning from God and turning from others and turning inwardly upon just ourselves, it hardens us. Not only does does our life become dark, but our hearts become hard. This word translated hardness also means blindness when it refers to the eye. And so we become hard toward God and blind toward others. The, the Apostle John uses this same language um, in 1 John. I've got to read this to you. It's great. 1 John chapter 2 Verses 9 through 11, listen to how the Apostle John uses the same imagery and language. He says, whoever says, I am in the light, turn toward God and others. Whoever says, I'm in the light, while hating a brother or sister, is still in the darkness. They're not in the light. Whoever loves a brother or sister lives in the light. And in such a person, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates another believer is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and does not know the way to go because the darkness has brought on blindness, hardness, hard toward God, blind toward others. And then step three, this futility, this mindset of futility. This, this, this mindset of futility is the opposite of the mindset of unity. And I hope you see that. Turning away from God and others, our understanding's being darkened, our hearts are becoming hard. And now it says we've lost, they, they've lost all sensitivity. Paul says in verse 19 that these people are lost. You know, we use that language about someone who doesn't know Christ. And what do we, what do we mean? Like I've always, when I've even spoken those words, I'm like, what am I saying about that person when I say that they're lost? Like they've lost their way. God knows where they are. But what do I, I mean? I, and this kind of helps me here a little bit to understand it. It's kind of a different way to think about it, perhaps, but, but the idea about people being lost. But you could think about here in Paul's language that they're, they're lost because they've lost all sensitivity to God and to others. Perhaps 
you know someone and you would say they're lost because when you're with that person, you just, you know that about them. They, they have no sensitivity toward God. No sensitivity toward other people. Lose all sensitivity. And then finally, this step four, we give ourselves over to sensuality. So this is, this is the rock bottom. In this turning away from God and others, in a turn inward upon self, if one continues down this path, if one continues in this way, it leads to even an abandoning of self. Not only have you just turned inwardly upon self, but then you come to a place where you give up on self. And you give yourself over. Paul, in the NRSV, it says you abandon yourself to sensuality. You hand over the keys to sensuality. Or uh, in the NRSV, licentiousness. You know, that's a really interesting word. Um, It literally means to have freedom with no boundaries. That's what that word means. That's translated sensuality, licentiousness. It means to have freedom with no boundaries. Now think about that. God sets healthy boundaries for his people because he loves us. Others place good boundaries in our lives because they love us. My parents placed good boundaries in my life because they loved me. We have our own personal boundaries because we care about ourselves. But when we've turned from God, when we've turned from others, and we've even abandoned ourselves, there's no boundaries left. We do and we think with no consideration of any kind to any standard or any way or any boundary. And we end up at this place where we're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What a statement. What a statement. We're greedy. There's, a, there's an insatiable desire. Where there's a, there you, you can't get enough. You want more and more and more. And even in the NRSV, the choice of this word practice, where we're greedy to practice every kind of impurity, that paints a very vivid picture for me because we only practice things that we want to get better at. We only practice things that we want to improve in our lives. We practice guitar because we want to get better at playing guitar. We practice piano. We practice basketball because we want to become a better basketball player, baseball. But get this, in this futility of the thinking of the old self, the old self is greedy to practice sin in order to get better at it. In order to improve at every kind of impurity. And this word translated impurity is a word that literally means the foul smell of a wound. What a vivid 
description. And it, it just begins with a dimming of the lights. Turning away from God and others. And it ends up here. I came up with this years ago in teaching this section to college students. And um, I, I wanted to share it with you. I think it's helpful. It's, it's a... It's, uh, it's, it's just in, in thinking about this process and how it might work itself out in someone's life, um, I just use this as an example, and it's, it's, uh, I, I hope it helps you, but it's a harmless one, I think. But um, I enjoy um, relaxing at night, maybe coming in and sitting down uh, and watching the television. And so... You know, I realize that Karen needs my help around the house, and I understand my responsibilities as a dad, and I want to spend quality time with my kids, and, and, and um, so generally, I, I work really hard to create a real healthy balance, um, you know, uh, but, you know, things are just real tense. As I said earlier, you know, life is kind of weighty and wearisome, and I'm with people all day, and um, so I come home. One night, and I say to myself, you know, I've, I've given this entire day to the Lord in ways of service um, that many people probably don't know or imagine. And if anyone deserves to go home and just sit in their recliner and watch TV for the night, it's me. There's a little dimmer switch, and my understanding has just become darkened. It's just like lowering a switch. And I neglect Karen, kids. It's a turning turning away. Same scenario goes on at work for a couple days, then a week, and then a month. My heart starts becoming hard. Karen confronts me about how much time I spend with the TV, how she has needs that aren't being met, and the, the honey-do list at the house is getting really long, and I, I, I answer her with excuses. I put blame on her, on my, on my job, and I'm completely unresponsive. My heart is hard. Then, because Karen has kind of hacked me off real good, I decide that I'm just going to blatantly watch TV at all times of the day. Even times when I normally didn't. I have the TV playing at breakfast, at dinner. I purchase a set for our bedroom. I fall asleep to Sports Center every night. I've lost all sensitivity. I no longer hear Karen, I no longer care. Finally, because I'm so obsessed, can't function without the warm glow of the television. Purchase one for the bathroom. Talk to the elders about installing cable here at the building for ministry purposes. 
But it's a process. It's, it, it began with a simple darkening in my understanding. And it turns into sensuality, indulgence, freedom with no boundaries. Turning away from God and others, it's a turning inward upon self, and then it's abandoning self for sin. I've titled this three-week series, Walk This Way. In verses 17 through 19, Paul paints a vivid picture of the way of the old self. He insists that the Gentile Christians must no longer live in this way. Then in verse 20, I'm going to get a little preview for next Sunday. He writes one of the great verses in all the New Testament. This is where we're going to begin next week. Paul writes, that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. There is another way. And it's the way of Christ. And it shapes who we are ethically. The way of Christ determines our behavior and our conduct in this world. The way of Christ turns us away from self and back toward God and others. The way of Christ sees that the purpose and the meaning and the significance and the value found in this life is found in our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Whatever difficulty it might take, whatever hardship, whatever obstacle must be climbed for for these two groups to become one. It's worth it because this is where there's purpose. This is where there's meaning. This is where there's significance. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened to walk in the way of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for this message. What a message to us. Lord, and we see here how specifically it's about the Gentiles and the Jewish Christians coming together as one, but oh my goodness, there's so many applications of two becoming one. The value and significance of relationship and the importance of two people who are different and at odds and turned away from one another, and turned in upon self, and have even abandoned themselves to sensuality and sin, the importance of those two people coming together, unified as one, under the headship of Jesus Christ. There's the meaning. There's the purpose. There's the significance. Lord, place place that in our heart. Open up the eyes of our heart to see to see your mysterious will, to see the purpose of the cross is breaking down all the barriers that keep all that from happening.
May we see the church as the, 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 the venue and the means for displaying all that happening. And Father, just, just bring, I, I, I pray that we will follow this call to not live, to not walk in the way of the old self. Because it's not the way we learned Christ. And so, Lord, continue to teach us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.